Hello and welcome to the 153rd episode of The Sausage Factory, which is brought to you by Spong.com and hosted by me, Chris O'Regan. In this show, we interview video game developers and ask them how they made their start making games, what the influences are and who inspires them. Split into two halves, the show initially focuses on the developer themselves, and in the second half we discuss the game here to promote, which in this case is The Long Journey Home by Daedalic. Andreas, who are you and what do you do? My name is Andreas, I'm creative director at Daedalic Studio West, and I did um, Long Journey Home. You have uh, many branches in Daedalic, isn't it? So I wasn't sure which branch it was, so it's West, is it? Okay. Yeah, 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 it's a newly founded uh, uh, company. I founded it in 2014 together with Daedalic, so it's a subsidiary, so to say. And uh, the only game we worked on so far is The Long Journey Home. Yes, because I know them as a publisher. Very, very um, good publisher. Very good taste. You know, they, 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 they release some excellent stuff. Um, it's like, you know, I'm quite, so, I'm quite taken by them. And they kind of come out of nowhere. But uh, before we delve into that, how did you make your start making flashy, lighty video games? Um, oh, actually, I, I started quite early. So I'm in the industry now since, I don't know, more than 70, 18 years. And I started actually as a tester. Um, my, my background is completely different. I was in the rescue service before. And then I studied engineering with more of a focus on firework, like like um, fire departments. So that was my, my overall direction. And I met my wife in that time when I was studying. And we got a kit and we needed some money. So I had several jobs. And one of the jobs were a tester for Blue Byte, which were doing Battle Eye and Settlers um, 3 at the time. So I started there as a tester. And um, at one evening, someone came down into the test department and asked if he is someone who can script or program a bit. And I was bold enough to say, hear me, which was actually not very true. But yeah, so, so I got, got a task to... Um, with a program language or a script language called Lua um, to do um, to do a tutorial kind of thing for Settlers 4, uh, I think. And then, then I was sitting down there and trying out stuff and didn't fully understand what to do, but but I did something. And at the end, they, they liked it enough. So I kept being doing something like, like level design and scripting, etc. So that's actually... And then <laughs> I you stayed. You really <laughs> fell into it, didn't you? It like, yeah, yeah. It was really not. It was not by purpose. So I always. It's this kind of job where you think you want to do it. I mean, I started playing very early. So I had a C sixty four. I even played in some arcades. Uh, um, so it's quite interesting yeah. when I speak to fellow Europeans about their origins when they first started playing video games, and typically it's divided into two. It's either the Spectrum. <laughs> <laughs> or the C64. Yeah. And although if you're French, it might be the Amstrad. You know, it's just... It's, <laughs> and there's that wonderful divide. Uh, it doesn't mean anything now, but back then it was quite heated. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, I, I'm coming from a small town and there we had a little kind of, uh, of shop where they had some arcades still standing there. Okay. So I was playing with right. my friends really old games. So because right. it was the only ones we had and then when then the C64 and Amiga, etc. And then PC... Um, yeah. Yeah, so, so making games was always something that intrigued me a lot. Um, right. I was actually doing, we, we have something in Germany called Volkshochschule. It's a kind of, you can you can do classes there, like like 
all people can do classes there, so they, they offer different classes. And one of the classes I did with my father was actually basic. So um, we, we were learning basic together, and then at home I was super proud that I can make a sprite jumping on, on the screen. And that was something like, I loved that so much. Or in that time, I also remember that I bought always a magazine and you had, there were games in the magazine and you had to code it. So they had really like print and printed code and you had to write it down to play it because there were no disc, etc. Yeah. So I remember that. Um, so it was always in my mind to say, oh, I, I would love to make games. Um, but at the other side, it's like, like you know, going to Hollywood and getting uh, getting into it. So we, it, it was never in my mind like I I really pursuing it. It was more like, oh, it would be cool, but never did it. And then when the option came up, like working as a tester there, I said, okay, I will at least try. But I never were like, like this is my career and I want to do it, especially not in that time, uh, in that days. It does seem a bit, uh, back then, it's even more disconnected. Like, apparently people make these, but how they get into that, you don't know. But it turns out it, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're talented and intelligent, but they're not, you know, they just applied themselves. That's basically yeah. separated us. It's like, oh, they just, you know, just went on and said, well, you know, people are making this stuff. This isn't magically appearing out of some, you know, um, hole in the ground. These games are being made by someone. I might as well do that too. And they, well, um, you know, it's just, that's what happens. You just, but you're right. I have a lot of the guests on the show that think that, you know, the creation of video games is akin to filmmaking. No one does that. No one really yeah. has a, you know, a, a shot at it because it's just it's not a proper job in inverted commas. Yeah, yeah, and 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 that times it was really like, I mean, you you didn't have any internet, so you couldn't really look up how it works and how you could do it. So it was really like, um, I had no idea which companies are there, etc. So you know, okay, for example, Blue Byte, it was a company I. Um, very early on, like like old Battle Eye or Settlers Two was one of the games I played a lot. Yeah, or when me Settlers too. One... I, I love Battle Isle games, but yes, yeah, they were they were great. Yeah, so I, you were used to history line was one of of those. I actually played with my brothers and split split screen. So you know it is a German company that did that, but I even didn't know where they're located. And you look in the manual and you see ah Mülheim, that's quite far away from here. So yeah, but you never would would. I mean, you know there are so less games out there. There are not many companies, and it's super hard to get a job there. And you couldn't teach yourself easily actually. Um, so yeah, it was quite far away from from doing that, and then I just stumbled into it, and I stumbled and stumbled, and now now I'm here. <laughs> so, so, so and you're at Ubisoft for quite some time because um, everyone Ubisoft eventually I think bought out Blue Byte, didn't they? Or I might be wrong. Yeah, in, exactly. In 2001, we were we were bought. I was there before and was was doing especially more. They were not really a game design. I didn't have a game design title or something like that. It was. Actually, my title was Data Wizard, and my first job, my first real job I had there beside making this little scripting stuff is yeah. assuring that there's always a, a, a version that can be played. So currently, nowadays, you have automatic systems that build a version, but I had to build the version by hand in that time. So really like getting the, the graphic data, getting the code, compiling it, preparing it, making making a version and putting it on the network so the testers can play. That was actually my main job what I should do and uh, one part of the jobs I really hated a lot but I learned a lot <laughs> with that is uh, making sure that the graphic assets 
which were all 2D and all the animations were like 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 single pictures. So a woodcutter animation, for example, I don't know, the woodcutter alone had something like 1,200 pictures or something like that. And when there was a was a bug, like like graphic issues and the graphic artist. You had to check every had, frame. Oh, yeah, I didn't check every frame, but yeah, sometimes I had to. But very often it was more like like the the graphic artist named his file lumberjack and the code it was named woodcutter. So one of the things I did a lot was actually renaming thousands of files wow. <laughs> and preparing them so they can be in the version. It was really strange times. Yes, yeah. yes. I mean, yeah, but I learned a lot. I mean, that, that's a positive thing. I learned a lot yeah, about yeah, basic structure, yeah. how you do special things, etc., what to take care about really early on, and processes, etc., etc. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a fascinating period. I think, personally, I think one of the most fascinating periods of video game development in history is the year from 1998 to about 2003. So much happened in that five-year okay. period uh, that um, people learned a lot of things. Half-Life 2 arrived, Baldur's Gate sort of suddenly appeared and like, oh, RPGs aren't rubbish anymore. That's right, they're not rubbish. And design, development and new consoles arrived. It was a very, it was a very critical time uh, and it formed a lot of what we have now, uh, I believe. Um, mm-hmm. but you were there in the thick of it, but uh, looking at it from the outside in, I was fascinated by how things were changing so rapidly. It's a very interesting and exciting time. Um, but, uh, right, in that time there was also a switch from 2D games to 3D games. Yes. So I, I remember that when we started with Settlers 5, it was a hard discussion if we do it in, in, in 2D again or if we if we try to do it in this great new 3D and Age of Mythology just released or was about to release and right. it was the first strategy game in 3D that yes. looked proper enough. Yes. So it was really like, okay, should we do it or not? And when I left, uh, when I left Ubisoft um, several years later, I still had um, post-its from the meeting where we discussed the pros and cons for 3D. It was really, really funny. I always kept them for years, and I gave them as a present to uh, to the managing director when I left. And they were really, really funny because something like in 2D it looks much better. 3D we have never done that again before. We we need tools for that. So something like that was on on those post-its. It's really fun to see something like 10 years later. It is, isn't it? When you look back and like, you you know, it's just I've always said, um, you know, if you could go back and sort of tap yourself on the shoulder and like, you have no idea what you're doing. (laughs) It's not gonna go that way. Yeah, at all. And uh, you, that's exactly what happened. Exactly. You, you just show them a smartphone and goes, look at this. Look at it. Stop yeah. it. You know, like, I, this smartphone's more, yeah, the smartphone's more powerful than the PC you're developing this game on. Just stop it. Yeah, you know. even, 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 it's even, even scarier. I, for Settlers 5, I did a document. It was around 500 pages. I think, except me, never, ever, someone read it <laughs> and that was a design document how the game should have been done so it was so strange it has it was so disconnected from the real world <laughs> yeah but, but in that yeah. time you thought that's the right way to do it exactly but now now things are very 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 different you have all these engines yeah. uh, and you have all of these high level languages flying around no one does assembly anymore unless they're building drivers for something uh, or they're building their own engine for reasons best known to themselves. I don't know. Um, did, did, did they find now um, a position? There, there was an open position at the NASA for um, 
um, uh, for programming the Voyager probes because the guy is retiring, who actually is the only one who still knows the code uh, for wow. the Voyager probes. Wow. And there was, I think, two years ago, they were searching for someone who can replace him. That's <laughs> and it was really strange. That's the requirement strange. for that job, like yeah, and that computer is assembly stuff. It's probably got bits of memory. Oh God, yeah, yeah I can't, yeah. They had. They didn't have kilobytes. They had a byte or two uh, of memory on those things. Oh, I wow. I was I was once king in my group because I had one MB um, uh, RAM for my PC. I bought that for I don't know something like five hundred D mark in the, in the last yeah. pass, and I was really like, I had the best PC because it's one megabyte of RAM. <laughs> that was that's what times. I also had one of the first CD burners in my uh, in, in in my peer group. It was really like super exciting. Speaking <laughs> of ridiculously overpowered things, I'd love to share this with you because did you own an Amiga at one point? I can't remember. Um, I completely skipped actually the Amiga because a close friend who was living next in the next house uh, he had right. an Amiga and I had a 64 and then I got a PC. So he had the Amiga, I had the PC, but we were always playing his side or my side. So <laughs> I didn't sense. own one, but I, I I know how to handle one. <laughs> so uh, a good while ago now, I, I converted my A1200, uh, and uh, it were uh, it it's it's not Amiga anymore. It can run Quake at 30 frames per second. That's okay. Amiga's can't wow. do that. But it has it's so super powered. It's got thirty two megabytes of RAM. It's ludicrous. Ludic- <laughs> it's ludicrous, everyone. You don't Amigas don't need that much. Uh it's just absurd. It doesn't look like an Amiga either. <laughs> it's, it's in this tower <laughs> it's in this tower case. It's got a CD drive. It's just ridiculous. Um but it still works. I built it maybe eighteen years ago. It still okay, works. Cool. <laughs> yeah, so, I uh, Actually, last year I bought an old arcade. Um, okay. So I have the old arcade next next room here, and nice. um, so it's really the original thing. And um, but I had to replace the the monitor, so it's it's an original old TV thing. Right, right. But it's yeah. not running properly. So currently, I'm actually searching for someone who can fix that. And the funny thing is, I don't find someone. The most people say, I don't touch this. This is so old technology. I have no idea what's fucking, oh, sorry, what's going on there. So it's so, it's so hard for them to, uh, to, to find someone who still has the knowledge of this old technologies from the 80s. It's really interesting to yeah. see. It's I now the- found one guy and everybody in all forums I were and asking like, I have this arcade, yeah. uh, the, the chassis is not working yeah. and all people in Germany at least pointing to one guy one and guy. everybody's saying, he's quite old, maybe you contact him <laughs> early <laughs> enough. <laughs> no, there there is a there is a arcade scene over here in the well throughout the world. But you know, they go in a raid um old um sort of um places that no longer have these machines, they sort of pull them out and recover them and rebuild yep. them. And uh, it's quite it's quite an industry, quite a cottage industry, as they call it, where people just go in and try to repair these old machines and try to make figure out how they work because uh, they don't know because that, that, that knowledge is lost. The technology has changed so much. That, like you say, 30 years ago, electronics, solid-state electronics is entirely different to what it is now. Um, yes, there's still capacitors and things like that, but uh, technology has advanced quite significantly since then. Yeah. So, In Germany, yeah. that's a little bit different. We we have some scenes here. So it's, um, for example, some some something like 50 kilometers from here, there is a club and they, they organize themselves and 
they they fixing stuff. But then the other side, there's one special thing in Germany. All the arcades are covered by. Um, how to say get the law of gamble? So oh, even yeah, if it's gambling. normal eighty, yeah. it's it's not gambling, right? But it's no. in Germany it's covered under the law. So in Germany it's quite hard to put an arcade in a shop. So if you do that, then you have some laws of gambling, etc. Yeah. Even if it for a normal thinking person it sounds totally ridiculous, but that's how the law is. And what happens is nobody has this arcades anymore anywhere. So in Germany it's kind of hard to even display them because if you if you would put them in like like a bar, something like that, yeah. then you have to pay extra money for that. And that's really strange. And that killed a little bit this kind of scene. Yeah, yeah, it's not something we suffer too much over in the UK, but uh, we're digressing. Because we now need to, <laughs> we need to move on. Okay, uh, okay. Because uh, we could go on all about that. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. But, uh, Sorry. <laughs> that's, well, that's fine. It's fascinating stuff. But uh, uh, we're not a retro arcade game um, podcast. We're you know video game podcast, and we're here to talk about what influences you as a creator. So I'm going to ask you basically: you, you create things. What do you think influences you the most? Wow, that's that's a tough question. So. Mm. Um, I can make it on the example of the long journey home. I think it's really depending on the game and it's really depending on the situation you are in and depending on your your yeah, your basic life situation. So when I started with Long Journey Home, I was thinking about um um actually what kind of um intrinsic motivation um can drive me when I see a game. So for example I look at the Steam sales. Uh, I, t- I take a look at the Steam, uh, the, the Steam top sellers, and then in that year when I started thinking about Long Journey Home, there were a lot of survival games. So I was thinking about okay, why survival? Why are survival games so successful? And not only in in, in Europe, also in Asia, and also in, in the US. Um, and I, I mean, the the explanation is quite easy. I think it's. Um, as human beings, we still understand what survival means. So if someone is telling me you have to survive, then I have already a pattern in my mind what I have to do. So even if we don't live in the woods anymore, we have a pretty good idea what it means as a human to survive. So that's something that is an intrinsic motivation compared to like when someone is telling me conquer this uh, this castle, I never conquered a castle in my life. So I have no idea what it feels like. Um, and the motivation is ki- kind of external. Uh, can still be motivating, but that's the difference for me. And I was, um, I was thinking about having um, this kind of intrinsic motivation. Um, and I turned 40 in that year. And so one thing on my list um, that popped up is finding your way home, like um, metaphorically, but also literally. Mm. So the feeling of you are in a city and you're totally lost. And one part of it is it's totally fascinating because I was never here. This is new, this is exciting, that's completely exotic. I was in Morocco for some time and it was kind of scary and it was a culture shock, but it was also kind of, of interesting. So I, I like that idea. And metaphorically, it means I'm, I turned 40 in the year, so it was like, okay, where am I now? I'm married, I have kids. Did I do the path I wanted to do? Is, is this the place I wanted to be? So this finding your way home in a metaphorical sense, that really connected me. And then I was, uh, I was um, making lists about 
in which scenario would this work? And one of the scenarios were space, actually, because um, when you feel lost, you have, it's important that you don't know your surrounding and it's kind of new to you. And you can, with, nowadays with handies and GPS and maps, etc., it's kind of hard to get this kind of feeling. Um, so uh, I was either thinking about going into the past or I looked on the list of games I always wanted to redo, and one of them was Star Control and Starflight. So um, with with this in mind, it, it 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 fit very well to have this kind of feeling of feeling to getting your way home. That means Earth, and that doing that in space. So that is an example where the inspiration came from. But I think it can strike you from from everywhere. You're going through the woods and seeing, I don't know, a stone lying around and then you have an idea what to do with that. So it's... That's <laughs> just a wonderful answer. I think to he- basically what I'm getting from you is your biggest influence is um, empathy. You know, uh, it sounds a bit strange. I know you said it was more about motivation, but that's really linked to very, stro- very strongly to, to empathy and that you're, you empathise with someone's plight, including your own. If you were stranded on an island with only a stick yeah. to defend yourself with, what would you do? If you were stranded in a, a wasteland with only a can of beans, uh, a, 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 a pistol, and, uh, and 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 the clothes on your back, and uh, zombies are everywhere—that's a Day Z reference uh, or Day Z. Um, then uh, yeah, that what would you do? And this these are the they ask you a question and you have to answer it, uh, and you know. Um, uh, the battlegrounds game, which is you know it's been hugely uh, popular, that's all asking that question over and over again over a period of twenty minutes. It's 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 just it's and this you know the long journey home is definitely all about that. It's just like well, what would you do if you were flung uh, halfway across the universe, uh, you know, thousands of thousands of well, millions of light years away from home? How would you get back? If you could, and what would you do when you encountered beings and from other worlds and that sort of thing? What would you do? What would you? It, it, it's just a. Uh, There's it, so much to say uh, on on that, and uh, I think also when you said, "Oh, it depends on the game." Brilliant answer, because you know you probably had an idea to, like you said, you want to recreate Star Control, especially seeing after seeing games like FTL become so popular and. Uh, uh, Etc. There are other t- similar titles. Well, wow. that's that's um, there's something yeah, it, going it, on here. That that comes afterwards. I think after you, I, I, what I personally think strengths in video games is that that can give you an experience that neither a movie or um, or book or or an audiobook or whatever can give you. And that's basically is interaction and making choices and. Um, experience it from yeah mainly from from choices you do so um, I'm completely with Sid Meier I think he's the one who said a good game is about making interesting choices so when when this is the strength of of, of games so the interactivity and then I think we have to think about first about the experience we want to give and then we can think about how we can achieve that so and then then game mechanics and visuals and sound etc is just different kind of tools um, or all the tools um, you use to to create this kind of experience yeah um, so yeah so I think first comes the experience and then you think about what 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 you can do with that so my next question then Sure. Is um, what developer do you most admire in the industry? And why? 
okay, that's an easy one. <laughs> um, I, I just mentioned one, so Sid Meier is one of. Did Sid Meier is one? Sid is really one of, of the guys I really admire. Um, uh, Will Wright is another one. So I'm really I'm more on the mechanical side when it comes to games. So I'm really interested in understanding the systems, etc. Even when it's a narrative game, like for example, Minecraft is for me a systemic game that creates great narrative because it's my own narrative I'm living there. So, um, uh, yeah, so, so, but back to, to that. So we'll write, uh, uh, Sid Meier, I'm, I'm, um, actually yesterday, Bruce, uh, Bruce, um, uh, come on, um, Age of Empires, um, Oh, there you uh, go, guy now. Oh my God! I, actually, I just wrote with him yesterday because it was his birthday. Um, Bruce Shelley. Uh, Bruce yeah, Shelley. Yeah. Um, Shelley yeah. I had I had the luck to work with him um, on one of the Settlers titles. He was consulting there, and since then, um, I'm, I'm a big fan of him because he's such a polite and humble man who, who who did great games, but still is so down to earth and has a great ideas and great feedback. It's ones. It's he, the ones with no ego. It's like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Is this any good? Yes. I don't yeah. know. I don't know. I think it's a bit rubbish. Oh god. <laughs> you know. Yeah, he's he's yeah. a great guy. So, um but also um I don't know. There are so many good Actually, I admire everybody who's able to deliver a game because I know how hard it is to finish a game. So, so nearly with all the people I talked, um uh, with all the people I I um I talked, give me a second. I just um yeah, it, it's hard to pin down it on 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 single people. I also think that the guy who did Sims who did Civilization Four, uh, I think its name is Zuren Zuren. I talked with him once on a show. He's also very brilliant. Or I don't know, mm. Flames in the Flood uh, is is a game where I talked with someone. So it's it's hard. It's it's really hard for me to pin down some names besides the really big ones. Okay. Mm. So yeah, influences come and 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 um, admiring comes from all <laughs> all different. Yeah, areas. it's a very so hard it's... question to answer. I find yeah. some developers go, I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings, <laughs> but I miss them out. You know, yeah. it's lovely, yeah. but uh, I just want to, you know, because you're not living in a bubble. Clearly, you're not, uh, and you know, you do recognize other people's work. Yeah, um, which sometimes, but sometimes it's also the very small people. So I have also some, I don't know, some indie games. Um, yeah, yeah. I don't know. For example, the guy who did Papers, please. I forgot his name. Um, yeah, yeah, I've forgotten his name as well. So I'm sighing. Yeah, oh, but damn it, yes. he's great. So yeah. And all of those are inspiring because, especially, I like especially people who try to do something different. Um, yeah. yeah. So I mean, yeah, that's people do sort of balk at the Chinese room when they did the everyone's gone to the rapture. But I actually really like that game. If it is a game, I'm not sure if it is. I don't care. Oh, Proteus is another one. Is that a game? I don't know. Is it? <laughs> it's it's a it's a thing uh, that you experience, and I liked it. Bruce, so. Bruce Shelley said said something to me I really liked. He said you have to you have to um, differentiate between a toy and a game. And the right. game is something where you have a clear goal and you have rules. And the toy is really like the sandbox thing where you yeah. really like like a child sitting there and you have some things and then you play around and experience it. 
Um, and I think both are games. Um, yeah. The question is just what you what you what you want, what kind yeah. of taste you have. So I enjoy both. I also enjoy something that, as said, I'm I'm more with settlers and all and long journey home, etc. My background is really in the systemic stuff because I like that. Yeah. Um, but when I play, I also enjoy, uh, I really enjoy also purely narrative things. Yeah. Yeah. The one thing I ask questions when people say, well, you played, everyone's gone to the rapture. I said, oh, that's great. Who are you in that game? Never explains that. Mm. Not once does the game ever explain who the player is or what role they're playing. Not once. Have you, think- have you, s- which is the current one I just... Have you seen everything? The game called no, everything? No, I need to. I need to. Uh, okay. I mean, People, that's... Yeah. Where you can be everything. So everything. <laughs> what, yeah. what is that? <laughs> yeah, what is it? Fine. Yeah, But it's yeah. a cool experience. So. Okay, fine. Yes, exactly. Speaking of cool experiences, what are you playing right now? Um, uh, as said before we started the, 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 the recording, I am, I'm currently streaming uh, quite a lot on Twitch, and um, I tend to to play currently games that are super hard. So the last game I'm playing is Ori um, uh, in the Lost Forest. Oh uh, right, Ori in a lot. Yeah, what a game! What that's a game! Right, and before that, I played a really old one, which is actually from the years you just mentioned. Um, yeah. It's Apes Odyssey. Um, oh right, yeah, that's from the uh, launch. It's a launch game for the Xbox, the original it, Xbox. Yeah, yeah, but that's that's th- actually the third installation already. I played the original one, which, yeah. which was on PC, P- PC and PS One. Yeah, uh, exactly, PS One. Um, or PSX. I played the PC version, yeah. and it's uh, it's a super hard puzzle jump and run oh, kind of wasn't thing. It? So. <laughs> It's Brutal. insane. It's really insane. <laughs> I have one scene I played something like fifty times, yeah. uh, dying, 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 dying. Yeah. But I, I, uh, you know what to I'm, do. You just can't do it. <laughs> it's like, yeah, oh. yeah. But it's, it has always two parts. It has this part of um, of fi- finding out what to do, and then to be really good in timing and yeah. and, and really, so I, I enjoy that. But I also play. I don't know. Starbound uh, is something I'm currently playing or. Okay. Uh, still a big Mario Kart uh, fan. So oh, what, the, uh, so you have a Switch or? Um, still on the Wii U. Okay, okay. <laughs> but um, still also the new game. Zelda, but on the Wii U. So that's yeah, also yeah, something yeah. I'm currently playing. Yeah. Yeah. I play um, actually quite a lot. <laughs> that's good. I stream too. Uh, I've been uh, doing a special show because uh, Spong, we do like a special thing where we uh, have a database of video games. So I'm, I'm delving into our archives picking out games and i've done like 28 episodes of this show that i've done that i've played 29 now sorry 29 different games on 29 different platforms okay so so everything it's it's loving it it's just one minute i'm playing a nes game uh then i did elite on nes and then i played uh um uh there's an xbox rebel star uh, Raiders, Rebel Star Tactical Command, that's it's called, on uh, Gate on the Game Boy Advance, which is an XCOM night game done by Julian Gollop. And then I did last week, this sat- Sunday just gone, I did um, Dungeon Keeper on the PC. Ah, oh, great! Dungeon Keeper is also on my on my list uh, to play. So. It's, it's, oh, uh, it's and, yeah. Go on. Yesterday I played Overcooked with my with my daughter. Yeah, that's a game. 
that's a game and a half that is oh what a wonderful piece of coding yeah. that and is pony, and uh, when i look on my screen right now there is as well pony island which i haven't played yet right but uh, someone told me i have to play it but i'm a bit scared already when i saw the pictures yeah. One of the things I'm doing with the stream is that I'm not using DOSBox to play these old DOS games. I'm using an actual Windows 95 DOS machine. Oh, great. How do you capture it? I basically stream the VGA out into HDMI. Ah, oh, that's good. <laughs> Actually, that's one of the troubles I had with Abe Odyssey to run it in a proper resolution for the stream, but I figured yeah. it out afterwards. But it's, it's really not nice. easy. It's not easy. No, it isn't. It's, uh, but you, you do it for the love of it, don't you? It's like, it's just like, well, I could just put a DOSBox game. It's easy enough, but let's see how it really was. <laughs> oh, and I, I, three days ago with a friend, yeah. I played Frogger on my arcade. So that's... Ah. There you go. Awesome. So, that's the end of the first half. Well done. You survived. Good, good oh, man. Good. So now we jump yeah. into the second half where we delve deep into the long journey home. So, first question, it's not really a question. Regular listeners know I'm about to say this phrase, but you're, you're not regular listeners, so you. This is what is known as the zeroth question, um, because I'm going to give you a chance to pitch to our audience what is the long journey home. Okay, the long journey home is a space exploration RPG in which you choose four out of ten characters which have a real personality and then you make the first light jump of mankind which goes wrong and you end at the other side of the galaxy and then you try to figure out how to come home and on the way home you meet really really strange aliens and try to communicate with them and as it is with different cultures um, it might not work out in a, in a good way always so you have to learn how the aliens tick and who they are and what they are their traits um, um, to make friends uh, so you can at least hopefully reach earth with your four people yeah it all depends on who you choose isn't it um but <laughs> that's not true um but i just find some of the aliens are just brilliantly designed someone there's one that comes across as really nice then really not <laughs> i'm not oh, gonna say the, you mean the mitsurani right yeah oh, whoa <laughs> yeah. they're um, called friendship they're they're friendly they give you gifts they, they, they certainly give you something um but yeah it's uh yeah anyway <laughs> Yeah, you learn that lesson pretty quick and you repeat play. But I'm going to ask you, sort of, it's a great pitch. I mean, it's a, it's essentially, it's difficult to describe until you see it running and playing, but you'd split between two, I believe, or maybe even three sort of styles 
uh, you have the inboard on board the ship interaction with the different characters and the and their their plights and what they're going through and the stress they're going through, and it's not good. And then then you have the actual interstellar flight where you're flying around between systems and doing slingshots and orbits around planets. That's awesome. And then there you interact with other aliens. But then there's the other bit, which is personally my favourite bit, is when you're actually landing on planets with your uh, your shuttle ship. Okay. Uh, which is that's my personal favourite bit. I, I actually um, just like interacting with with planets and finding things and drilling and and God knows what else and 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 getting things because the more stuff you get, the more likely it is you're you're going to survive the next ten minutes. <laughs> <laughs> when travelling through the galaxy uh, in the long journey home, there's a definite sense that one poor decision can lead to a domino-like effect that eventually leads to catastrophe. Was this always been the intent with the long journey home? Has it always been? Have you always have you always built in? Was it always your intent to design the game in such a way to always have the player feeling that they're on the brink of catastrophe? Yeah, so what, what was really always a goal is that we make a game where every decision really counts. So that it's really like, that's the reason why we choose to be at a uh, rook light, uh, so, so to have not like I make a decision and then I go back and and redo it with a safe game. So we really want to give you if if you want to feel like you are at the other side of the galaxy and you're meeting strange alien, then I think your decisions have to count. So everything we did in the game were always thinking about: Do we have different options? Do you always have different options what to do with the stuff? And is the decision you are making having an impact uh, or not? And we always try to make the impact kind of important. And what we also, but what we also wanted is, and we didn't want to have a game where it's random, random. So it's like I choose this answer, and then it has a different outcome than before. We wanted the player to be able to learn. So if you make the decision, like you just mentioned, the Mitsurani. Uh, so the first time you meet them, it's like, oh, they are nice. And then you figure out who they are and what they do. And that doesn't change. So next time you play the game from the beginning, you know who they are. So you can ac- accumulate this kind of knowledge and then you can make better decisions. So, yeah, a lot about is built around that. Yeah, when I encountered it the second time, uh, I was yelling, die in a fire, die in a slow burning fire. <laughs> exactly. Just die in a fire. That'll be great. Thanks. Um, yeah. but I'm not going to spoil it anyone you go figure it out yourself it's one of the funniest and most tragic things um, next question then I'm going to mm-hmm. ask about my favourite section which is the landing section which I call it the landing bit where the player you know, drops on t- through the atmosphere and then lands their shuttle on the ground and um, as much as I like it I actually find, found it initially quite jarring quite disorientating because one minute I'm floating through space doing slingshots around uh, planets the next minute I'm trying to land a small shuttle on a, on a planet uh, and it's it's quite difficult to flip between the two um, you've done a great job of, of easing people into it but why was it included has it always been there or is it something you added um, no, it was always. It was actually one of the first prototypes we did uh, were the landing, and the reason where, um, as said, we started with this kind of feeling, and then we very fast went to Star Control and Starflight, and we looked look deeply into those old games. They are, I think, Starflight is 
is 30 years old this year. Um, and we liked this kind of game. So we looked at that and wanted to have some kind of framework. Um, and yeah, so just flying around in space and pressing a button to gather resources was actually not what we wanted. We wanted to have this kind of experience. And those games had also landing on planets. Um, but the gameplay were like, it is kind of shallow. You were just, it was top down and you were driving around there and collecting resources and going back. And it was really like, like, I actually, I liked it a lot. I thought I liked it a lot, but this is one of the games where you took a look at it 20 years later and you realize, oh my God, it wasn't actually so good. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. So we were wondering how can we make an interesting gameplay of that without eliminating it. And then, mm. Mm, we came up with, okay, Lunar Lander kind of gameplay. We, we like this from the side. And first we thought it's really strange to have a top-down game in Star System. And then you have a side-scrolling thing on the planet. And we thought it, it will not work out. But we did a prototype and it worked out greatly. And we had a lot of cool ideas how to make this more interesting, like higher gravity and wind and hazards, etc. So we had very, very fast, a very good list about challenging the player and make a very, very rarity in landing mm -hmm. because most of the games where you have a big universe and where you can land on planet it's either it, it can or I, I rephrase that it can get really fast really repetitive or it can be really like everything looks or feels the same when playing okay. and we tried to have a good mixture of those and building it around the gameplay so and when we had the prototype it felt so well already and it, had, it gave the game already a feeling of of size because then you're flying around in space and then you land there and you have this little lander. And it was also very important for us to have this scene where the little lander is docking on the big ship because that gives you a, a sense of size you normally don't have in those games. So you have this little ship in the star system and you think already, oh, it takes a long time to go to the planet. Then you undock your lander and then you see the sizes and then, then you land somewhere and then you go back and it gives you this feeling of, of, of wow, this is a huge universe and I can go everywhere. So we, mm. yeah, that's how it uh, how it developed. But it was, it was actually there really right from the beginning like the communication system um that were the two main parts we had very early on the star Excellent. system flight uh, the communication system um and uh, the landing i want to ask about the crew roster now um your initial 10 characters that you have placed before you presented to you and i'm just asking wondering is it a kind of i don't know way of changing the difficulty of the game i asked this because some of the characters are brutally obvious like of course they'll come along and then there's another one is actually a blogger like why and it's <laughs> so you're, just, you're just probably gonna get away no and it's just so i'm asking the question how impactful is the choice of crew members to the experience of the long journey home um, so first of all, we wanted to have a crew roster that's a little bit unusual and we wanted to have diversity there. So that was super important for us. So yeah. not the typical like uh, American, US, yeah. space marine <laughs> guy. So yeah. um, we were a little bit bored by what's out there a lot. Yeah. So we tried to have something that's a little bit different. And we said this first light jump of mankind is also one of these uh, first... It, it's space for everyone kind of thing so it's like 
showing also that everybody can go to space, not like super specialists. Right. So we are at the brink of opening the the, the space to to like yeah like everyone, okay. and uh, we we like this kind of vibe. So. And then we said, okay, we want to have a good and interesting mixture of characters. And that's why we came up with someone like Ash, who is a botanist, and he's actually gay. He's married to a man. They have kids. And there is also Zoe. You just mentioned the blogger from Australia. Yeah. Uh, she's uh, she's running one of the biggest science websites, and she's brought along for as chronologist Um because the story is you are just supposed to do a short jump to Alpha Centauri and back. So everything yeah. seems to be safe. And it's it's a mixture of a PR mission for the um, International Aeronautic and Space Agency. Um, uh, so it's a bit, little bit like like we're proving that, that everything is safe and fine. Mm. <laughs> um, so that that's one thing. The other thing is... Um, we decided very early on that we didn't want to have stats like plus five in engineering or something like that. We right. wanted to have narrative-wise. We want to have a story. So some of the characters, actually most of the characters bring with them their own story. Some of them are very hidden. I can, I will not spoil too much, but like the archaeologist, um, she is... Uh, um, she's good with archaeological stuff. So if you have a certain race in the game and you have her, you can find a very special ruin and it's opening up uh, actually a, a completely universe-changing kind of um, of story. Mm. So or Kirsten, she was on the ISS too. She's the only real astronaut. Um, yeah. She has cancer at the beginning of the game, and if you do not follow, if you do not, if you do not take care for her. She might die during um, getting back to Earth, but there is a possibility to heal her, uh, and it might be a big sacrifice. Um, so I, I try not to spoil it too much, but at the other side, I want to give a little bit of glimpse about, about that. So it's not that I, I'm very often asked which is the best roaster you can, can do, and I, I can only say there there's none because... Um, they can, the basic stuff they all can do. They are all trained to refuel the fuel. They are all trained to fix some stuff on the ship. Um, they have some special traits, like the engineer can use alien technology to fix the ship. Um, but that's not the main reason you take them. You take them to experience a story and to making the interesting decisions. So everything you find in the game, like in biotops or ruins, you present to them in the laboratory. And depending on who you picked, uh, you have different options, and that branches also the stories and the quests, etc. That's excellent. Yeah, I, I suspected that was the case, certainly in my own experience. But I'm like you say, I'm getting a lot of feedback thinking, Oh, what's the optimum? There isn't an optimum, <laughs> yeah, it's just whatever you feel like you want to do. Yeah, uh, it's it's and it's a great way of replaying the experience. And because replayability on, uh, uh, on, on the, the long journey home is amazing. Um, Last question then. I know, all good things must come to an end. The Longest Journey has many moving parts to it. If the player does not recognise this, they are sure to fail, at least in my opinion anyway. So I'm going to ask you this, and I'm only going to give you one. What is the one thing, the one thing you would tell a first-time player to do or suggest before they dive into The Long Journey home? You mean before buying it or before <laughs> before no, no, starting before playing? Before playing. Okay. Um, don't land on planets where the mission forecast means deadly. <laughs> 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 
So one of the, <laughs> one of the complaints we had really early on and we're still getting is like, oh my God, I'm always landing and it's so repetitive and I'm always dying. And when we ask where they land, they say on every planet. And we say, no, the first decision you have to do is where to land and take take the right, right risk. So, um, so that's one thing. Second thing is... Um, before making the jump from the solar system in the tutorial, maybe try to fly around and land on some planets just for learning um, instead of uh, directly making uh, and play in story mode uh, and maybe take uh, take the Odysseus lander, which is a little bit more, it's heavy. It, 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 because if you, some of the people, it, it's really interesting that you say you like the landing the most. We are also... Yeah, yeah. We get a lot of feedback from people that they find that part the hardest, okay. um, uh, and um, so I can only I can only say if if if, it, if that feels hard, then try to take the Odysseus uh, and try to land on several planets before really diving into it okay. and jumping to the other side of the galaxy because then it gets hard. <laughs> yeah, because there are many different. Uh types of ship you can have by the way everyone so there's lots of different options and choice it's just like it's it's a you create parallel universes of the same situation uh it's quite funny uh and it's lovely like that and it's just so well presented and packaged up i just wanted to tease more out of you about because it is not easy but then again a game like this isn't supposed to be how could uh a journey from across the universe be Having said that, you have recently released a story mode, haven't you, which you just mentioned, which yeah. makes things a little bit easier, takes the foot off the pedal just a little bit and makes it more of a, you can now see, experience the story for yourself. However, the adventure mode, which is now, I believe it's called, is the, what was the default mode where you just like, well, yeah. you just have to, yeah. you have to struggle through. Yeah. What I also think is an important thing is what I saw in streams very often is that people tend to to quit too early. So like one guy died and then they said, oh, now I cannot make it anymore and I stopped. But actually, one of the beauty of the game, in my opinion, is that very often you have, when you understood the game, you have a lot of options to save yourself. And it's a very strong experience when you are like on the edge of dying and then you get to the last star port and then you fix everything and then mm -hmm. then, then then it's great again. So it's, yeah. it's really like, yeah. um, but very often people tend to like, oh no, I'm, uh, I have only 5% hull left, I'm done now. But it's, it's not like that. So you have actually, that's also the reason why we entered the story mode because nowadays a lot of people expecting a game to take you by your hand and explain everything that's nothing we do but what we wanted to do is to give players who are unexperienced and a little bit unpatient maybe um, at least a glimpse about what is in the game so some yeah. of them even didn't reach the first starport and I just, they just thought um, and we, we still see that Mm -hmm. uh, just thought, oh, I have to land on all planets and get resources, and this is fucking hard, and I hate that. So it's it's no, you don't have to do that. You have many, many more options, and we want mm -hmm. at least give you an idea what's what there. For me, I, I found games like FTL and Out There great training <laughs> for your your for for this because they're very different games. However, they do reward risk takers, yeah. and you just have to push the limits and go. Well, I've only got five percent of hull. Yeah, but you got five percent hull, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> not. Yeah, but I've only got. No, no you got five percent hull. Nowadays, uh, games tend to be a little bit more like like easier, a little bit more casually, and give you a lot of rewards and explain everything with a lot of tutorials. But 
for, for us, that was kind of a balance to give you enough to understand the basics of the game, but at the yeah. other side, give you the feeling about feeling lost, and you have no idea. And when, when you meet the first alien, you have no idea how to react. And yeah. when you figure out how to react, that's such a strong feeling. There's a there's a race in the game when you they always tell you when you call them, like, oh, this is not the proper way to call you, but now nah, you are new to this universe, so no idea. But if you raise your weapons in that moment and then call them, they have completely different kind of um, of talking pattern to you. They completely react differently because you have shown strengths. And this is the kind of cultural clash we wanted to enforce. And yes, that means the player has to figure that out by themselves. And overall, the mainstream seems not to get used to that. <laughs> it's not no, used to that anymore. It's so. sad, really. Um, but uh, I certainly figured it out. Because then again, I've been playing games for decades. So there it is. Well... It's out, or Long Journey Home, that is, it's out on Windows PC. Any yeah. other platforms? Uh, not yet. We are working on the others. Okay. I want to say other platforms. Does it work on Mac? I can't remember. It uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mac is one of the things on the list. Oh, good. Okay, right. My laptop's a Mac, you see. That's why I asked the question. Um, but, uh, no, well done for, for, for coming on, and thanks for coming on. Well done for finishing the game, because that's never an easy task. Thank and, you. And uh, I think it's fantastic. I think it's a great uh, addition to my Steam library, and I'm, I'm enjoying it immensely. Uh, especially oh, thanks game. a lot. It, it's, it's a fantastic little game. And when I first clocked it at PAX, it must have been West, I don't know, uh, up on the sixth floor. I do remember that. That uh, yeah, I thought oh, we, I need to get you on the show when it's finished, and here you are. Uh, That's all this, it's yeah. great. Thank you. Thanks a lot. I mean, it was a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I hope you got a lot out of it, and uh, I do wish you the very best of luck. You're more than welcome to come back and talk about your next game, whatever that may be. <laughs> yeah, first some vacation maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Good idea. <laughs> and so ends another episode of the Sausage Factory. Do leave us an iTunes review and you can also, don't forget, listen to us on Stitcher.com. So just go to Stitcher.com and you can stream the show from there. You just look up The Sausage Factory and you can find us. That'd be great. You can follow me on Twitter at Chris O'Regan, no apostrophes. And uh, if you want to email me any feedback on the show or actually you're a developer you listen to the show and want your game featured on it, please do email me at Chris at spong.com Also, don't forget to check out the Computer Game Show which is the stablemate podcast, should we say, of spong.com Bye!